This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Summer was in the air this week across the country. Schools are out everywhere, but Talk of Fame Network is still live and in color. There's a little extra leg room in the studio this week. Hi, I'm Ron Borges, along with my pal Rick Goslin in Dallas. But our third sidekick, Clark Judge, Judge is off on the early vacation. You ever take the last day of school off back in Detroit, Goose? You know, Ron, I, I never took the last day of school off, but I did take one day of school off in my life, and this is a good story. In October 1968, my dad and I flew to St. Louis for Game 6 of the World Series between the Cardinals and Detroit Tigers. Ooh. They played day baseball back then, so we flew back that night. Tigers won 13-1. Next day, they beat Bob Gibson Game 7 win the World Series, and I was back in class the next day. <laughs> That's you, Johnny, on the spot. Well, this is our final show before the rest of us join Clark and take our annual summer break. July will be filled with uh, Talk of Fame's greatest hits, four shows of our best interviews and arguments from the previous year. Uh, we'll be back when training camps open for another year on SB Nation Radio. But before we head to the beach and Robert, our producer, heads for his luxury suite at the Astros games, we got things to talk about. And one item that caught my eye this week was that the NFL Players Association hired longtime NFL personnel man Doug Whaley to serve as its director of college scouting. Considering they're the only league without guaranteed contracts, despite playing a sport more injury-riddled than boxing, wouldn't the NFLPA's money be better served hiring a negotiator who can get them what other team sports already have? Uh, that horse has left the barn. You know, football's got the largest roster in any sport. It's easier for basketball to guarantee the contracts for 12 players, even baseball to guarantee the contracts of 25 players. Football, 53 players, and there is no easy solution to the problem. But why don't you put a limit on the length of contracts? Make them all one-year deals, and then you have a slim chance of guaranteeing contracts in football. That's the kind of idea that Charlie Finley once suggested with baseball, right? Make them all free agents every year. They'll all be worthless, he told me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to go to a break here. School may be out for the summer, but our Hall of Fame guys are still doing their homework. We'll be back in a minute to get started. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to Talk of Fame Network. With our partner Clark Judge on visiting Quebec City and making believe it's Paris because they both have baguettes in their bakeries, my pal Rick Goslin and myself are running the show. Lord knows where that will lead, but it led me to scratching my head at another decision by the NFL. Chief starting guard Laurent Duvernay-Tardif graduated from McGill University Medical School in May, making him the only active NFL player who's also a doctor. It's a remarkable achievement that he did mostly in the offseason, and he wanted to celebrate it by adding MD to the back of his uniform. Of course, the league said no. With all the problems and all the unsavory news around the NFL, why wouldn't they take this chance to celebrate a guy who completed a medical degree in the offseason? Uh, what do you think, Rick? I mean, they really think there's going to be a million guys who become doctors? Well, let one do it, let them all do it. You know, like Lou Holtz once told me as I was sitting in his office at Notre Dame, it's not the name on the back of the jersey that counts. <laughs> it's the school name on the front. I'd take all names off all jerseys and not just the NFL. 
all sports, all levels. Too many kids have lost sight of the fact that organized, it's an organized sport and it's about the team, not about them. The New York Yankees have never needed names on the jerseys. Neither should anyone else. <laughs> well, maybe not Gooseman, but I don't think that the issue with uh, there's going to be a lot of doctors and PhDs having to put that on the back of their uniforms. But so we, uh, so we might find out. Uh, uh, you know, I did have another thought about though. Since he's a doctor, can the Chiefs avoid injury timeouts if he's the guy working on a teammate in the huddle? Sounds like a Bill Belichick, Ernie uh, Adams kind of mystery. What if Devorne Tardif gets hurt? The team trainers rush out, and he says, don't touch me. What do you do then? (laughs) That's probably what he should say. I also saw that Brett Favre claims his old backup, Aaron Rodgers, has told him he now understands the way Favre treated him uh, when he was a young backup. You remember, Goose, when Favre said, my contract doesn't say I have to get Aaron Rodgers ready to play? You think now that Rodgers is 34 and the Packers imported uh, young Deshaun Kaiser to compete with Brett Hundley for the backup job that he's beginning to understand the Turk comes for all players? Why rush the process by helping your competition? You know, that's a major problem at the NFL. There is no system to develop young quarterbacks. The, the owners begrudgingly funded the World League before pulling out and are reluctant to fund any other developmental leagues. It cuts into their bottom line. So they rely on young quarterbacks learning how to play from the veterans already in place. Favre saw that, Brady saw that, and there has been some pushback. Now Rodgers is seeing it, and if Drew Brees hasn't seen it yet, he's not looking. <laughs> yeah, you want to train? Did you want to train the guy who was going to take your job at the morning news? I don't think so. Forget about it. Uh, I wonder if you saw this story out of Denver, Gooseman. Uh, the Broncos have no taker yet for their stadium naming rights, and so they've changed the name to Bronco Stadium at Mile High until they can find a buyer. I was thinking. With marijuana now being legal all over Colorado, isn't it something like Smoothweed Inc. at Mile High the perfect sponsor? <laughs> What's the matter with Mile High? Just leave it Mile High. You're not going to get a sponsor at Mile High, but yeah, with all the weed going on out there now, that's that's where they should be looking. <laughs> I think it'd be the greatest. Can you imagine the free publicity they'd get? It'd be incredible, man. Uh, now, that's not the only odd financial story coming out of the NFL this week. It also came to light that the Redskins once had a waiting list of 200000 for season tickets, which is now down to zero. Meanwhile, over in Indianapolis, the Colts are now selling five-game season ticket packages that include one preseason game and four regular season games. I checked with a longtime friend of mine who worked for over 25 years in the Red Sox ticket office and said... NFL was always the only sport that didn't sell these partial tickets, and he thinks it's a bad sign uh, for them. Add to that the drooping ratings, and what do you think? Has the popularity of the NFL begun to peak? Oh, without question. Once upon a time, the NFL sold itself. You know, what the Cowboys and the the Colts and the Redskins are learning is that bad football is tough to sell. This is a sport that's long been oversaturated. It's far cheaper and a better experience sitting at your home in your barker lounge. You're watching the game on a 60-inch screen. You don't have to pay $75 to park your car. You don't have to pay $12 for a hot dog, $20 for nachos, $15 for a beer. You know, is bad football worth that expenditure? And you can turn the game off whenever you want when you're at home. In fact, you don't have to turn the game on. And the TV ratings are an indication that that's becoming a trend. The league has problems that aren't seemingly being addressed. Well, you're right. You know, Gooseman, the beauty of being in the living room, if there's an F-bomb, you launched it. 
not some guy behind you. You have to cover your kid's ears. You know, it's, 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 it's great. Um, I want to skip down to another item. Uh, I see that Jerry Rice uh, told ESPN the magazine that 13 years after retirement, uh, quote, I still feel if I wanted to come back to football and play, I could do it and be productive. Sure, the guy's in great shape. If you look at the ESPN body, it should proves it. But he's 55. You buying Jerry Rice in cleats, Rick? In 2004, at the age of 42... He was reduced to a possession receiver with just 30 catches and 30 touchdowns bouncing between two teams. I don't see how 13 more years on his body could have pumped extra life into his legs. It's wishful thinking on his part that the rules in today's game would allow him to still do things on the football field that his body cannot. <laughs> There's an old boxing friend of mine told me when he made a uh, uh, comeback. He said, you know... I could see the, still see the punches coming. Unfortunately, they hit me in the face before I could move. <laughs> <laughs> Same with these guys, you know. I always remember Emmett Smith at the end when he couldn't get out of the way, just getting blasted, which never used to happen. I mean, it was it was, oh, it was he got blasted here. He broke his collarbone. Darren, I think Darren Woodson pounded right. him. Oh, scan. And he's the guy that you're right. He had never. He would never take a direct hit. But as you get older, you get slower. Oh, yeah, he was getting the incoming for sure. Oh, and another item, another old friend of yours, disgraced ex-All-Pro pass rusher Greg Hardy, who got the boot from the Cowboys after the league gave him a second chance uh, when he was charged by his bruised former girlfriend with threatening to kill her. Uh, she later refused to cooperate, and the charges had to be dropped. Now he's trying to make it in martial arts uh, with the UFC, but he, and he told Sports Illustrated that he had visited with two NFL teams, but their owners refused to hire him. According to Hardy, quote, I went on a visit, and the whole place loved me. I went to the owner, and he was like, so, you're a wife beater. You did it, so just tell me how you changed. I didn't know where to go from there. I don't maintain my innocence. The United States government maintains my innocence, according to Hardy. Where do you go with that, Goose? And where's Greg Hardy going? Well, where, do, where does he go with that? He goes to the MMA cage and, and spends the rest of his, life, his professional life uh, as a mixed martial arts fighter, I guess. I mean, football, that again, that horse is out of the barn. Football's done, and uh, he's not coming back. <laughs> Well, fortunately, somebody who is coming back, because there's the signal, and that's Goose. You're going to state the case for another Hall of Fame hopeful who has yet to get a fair hearing, or maybe any hearing. Who you got for us this week, Rick? Ed White left terrific football memories everywhere he played. His California high school, his high school football field is named after him. He's in the University of California Hall of Fame. The Pac-12 named him to its all-century team. He's been inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. He became a second-round draft pick by Minnesota in 1969 and played nine seasons for the Vikings. He was named to both the 25th and 40th anniversary team of the Vikings and in 2010 was selected one of the 50 greatest Vikings. He was traded to San Diego in 1978 and played the final eight years of his career with the Chargers. He has since been named to the 40th and 50th anniversary teams of the Chargers and has been elected to the Franchise Hall of Fame. He was a Pro Bowl blocker in one of the NFL's best rushing offenses at Minnesota with Bill Brown, Dave Osborne, and Chuck Foreman. He's also one of only 10 players to participate in all four of Minnesota's Super Bowls in the 1970s. Then White became a Pro Bowl blocker in one of the league's top passing offenses at San Diego with Hall of Famers Dan Fouts, Charlie Joyner, and Kellen Winslow. The Chargers led the NFL in passing in White's first six seasons there and in seven of his eight seasons. Yet his career has never come up for discussion by the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. He played on teams that won 11 division titles and qualified for the playoffs 12 times in his 17-year career. He played in six conference championship games and four Super Bowls. His blocking protected two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, Fran Tarkin and Dan Fouts, and open holes for 3,000-yard rushers. 
His resume features quality, durability, and versatility, yet his Hall of Fame candidacy languishes in the senior committee. His 25-year window of eligibility came and went without anyone giving the career of Ed White a second thought. That's an injustice to one of the most talented offensive linemen the NFL has ever seen. Maybe it's time that Pro Football Hall of Fame followed the lead of his high school, his college, his conference, the NCAA, the Vikings, and the Chargers, and recognize his greatness. The career of Ed White deserves long overdue scrutiny from Canton. Well, that's a pretty strong case, Gooseman, and uh, that's food for thought for our listeners while we go away to to pay some bills. When we return, Rick and I will discuss a new series of polls about a lot of senior candidates uh, that have waited too long for their chance to get to the Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Rick and I are two of the nine members of the Hall of Fame's senior committee, and as a group, uh, as we've explained to you a long time, Talk of Fame listeners, we bring out one or two nominees in alternating years for induction. Uh, that nominating vote will be coming up in August, with the final decision being made the day before the Super Bowl. The truth is, we could bring out nine seniors a year, and it'd still take about a half a decade or longer to catch up. Uh, to highlight that issue, Rick has created a five-part poll series giving our listeners and, and the readers of our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, the chance to not only name their favorite senior candidates, but also to get a glimpse of how much forgotten talent remains trapped outside the Hall of Busts in Canton. So, Rick, how'd you come up with this idea, and uh, what did your research tell you? Ron, I think pro football, by and large, does a poor job of educating its fans about the Hall of Fame process. And as you know, we do a weekly poll on our website on a variety of topics, and I thought this would be a chance to educate the public on the difficulties of one aspect of the process, the senior committee. Each of the 26 established NFL franchises have three, four, and even five players that it believes has been treated unfairly by the selection process. The Cowboys, for instance, believe that Drew Pearson, Cliff Harris, Chuck Howley, Harvey Martin, and Leroy Jordan all should have busts in Canton. The Chiefs believe Johnny Robinson, Otis Taylor, and Ed Buddy all belong. The Raiders believe Cliff Branch, Lester Hayes, Jim Plunkett, and Tom Flores all belong. Now multiply that number by 26. That gives you a pool of senior pool, but 100 worthy players who deserve to have their careers discussed and debated by the Hall of Fame Selection Committee. And this year, we get to nominate one player from that pool. So we've created uh, five weeks of polls on our website highlighting 48 deserving senior candidates just to show how difficult the task is. Give us uh, a little idea of, of a couple guys, a few guys, and the credentials that, uh, that somehow have been ignored. Well, I mentioned two of them, Drew Pearson and Cliff Harris, both for first-team all-decade selections for the 1970s. In fact, of the 22 position players selected at the first team, Pearson and Harris are the only two without Boston and Canton. Now, if you're a first-team all-deca player, that that's becomes almost a rubber stamp to Canton. Yet Pearson has never even been a finalist, and his career has never been discussed. Harris has been in the finals once. Johnny Robinson is another. Of the 22 first-team all-decade position players in the 1960s, he's the only one still without a bust in Canton. How did he slip through the cracks into the senior committee? Alex Karras was one of three all-decade tackles, defensive tackles from the 1960s. The other two, Bob Lilly and Merlin Olson, were first ballot in Shrinies. Karras has never been a finalist. This is a guy who has more career sacks than Warren Sapp, who played in an era that there were far fewer opportunities to rush the passer than Sapp. How does a talent like his slip into the senior pool? 
you know, Goose, when you mentioned uh, um, Drew Pearson and, and uh, Cliff Harris, my conspiratorial mind immediately kicked into gear. I mean, that's a pretty fantastic thing when you say that only two of 22 first-team uh, all-decade players from the 70s, though, who aren't in the hall, they both just happen to be Dallas Cowboys. Uh, seems a little odd. Do I detect perhaps an anti-Cowboy bias back in those days? It just seems more than coincidental. Well, I've been on the committee for more than two decades, and Denver fans believe there's a prejudice against the Broncos. Dallas fans believe there's a prejudice against the Cowboys. Atlanta fans believe too many Falcons have been passed over, especially offensive linemen. The 49ers believe they deserve more than five players in Canton off the NFL's team of the 1980s. They all have legitimate beef with the process. The bottom line is there are too many qualified candidates and too few spots for induction. Do you think there was a time, though, that, that uh, perhaps some of these uh, more personal biases amongst the voters, especially when it was a smaller group, uh, existed? I, you know, uh, you and I have talked many times about the AFL teams believing that there was for a long time a bias against them. Do you think that this was cooking also amongst different guys with different teams? I, you know, I don't like the Vikings. I don't like the Cowboys. I don't like the Raiders. Yeah, I think there was a lot of politics that went on. Now, I do think there was uh, something with the Cowboys. I mean, a number of their players had gone in as seniors. I mean, Redfield Wright was a senior. Bob Hayes is a senior. Those guys were... The Cowboys went to five Super Bowls in the 70s, and they were woefully underrepresented. You know, we put a few seniors in now to make it better. But, uh, yeah, I think there was something going on uh, in the 70s with uh, maybe the America's team was turning people off. But there was something going on with the Cowboys back then. But they're, they're, they're catching up slowly but surely. You're also on the uh, NFL's committee that will vote on the 100th anniversary team. Great honor, by the way. Uh, kudos to you. Um, now I think you just, you just had two days of being wined and dined all over New York City, as I understand it, to discuss <laughs> this with the other committee members, all 2,000 of them, or however many there are. Um, but you also had a pretty interesting idea, I thought, uh, about how the pre-1960 players uh, should be handled. Uh, could you share that? That thought. Well, if you're going to pick a team that represents the best the NFL has had to offer over the last 100 years, then it should include players from all 10 of the decades. It cannot be a team built on stats. It must be a team built on impact. Was the impact Red Grange had on the game in the 1920s equal or greater than the impact, say, LaDainian Thompson had in the 2000s? Now, Thompson built an incredible stash of stats, but Grange drew fans to the game in the league's formative years. My concern is the 100th anniversary team will be laden with players who built stats over the last three decades. Let's say we only picked 10 players from the game's first three decades. How would you feel if we limited the number to 10 players over the last three decades? Impossible, you say? If you limited to 10 players from since 1990, a Peyton Manning, and a Bruce Smith, and a Deion Sanders might be left off. Yet we'd have no problem holding the players, uh, the number of players pre-1950 to 10 because we didn't see him play, and they didn't put up the gaudy stats prevalent in today's game. But that doesn't mean those players from the 20s, 30s, and 40s didn't exist, nor should their contributions go unrecognized. Those are the players that set the foundation for the sport that allowed it to grow into our national pastime. The Jim Thorpes, Don Hudson's, Dutch Clarks, Bulldog Turners, and Ed Sprinkles cannot be cashiered by the selection process, and my fear is that they may be. Well, what's your answer to, to so how do you think is the best way to avoid that possibility? Well, I, when I fill out my ballot, I put um, I put the I filled the name of ten pre fifty players at the top of each position board, and I didn't mess with them. If I was going to make any judgments, it'll be at the bottom of the board involving modern era players. 
I wanted to make sure there were at least 10 pre-50 guys on this team, so I put them at the top. Well, you raised a good point too. Obviously, they played less games in those days. They, you know, everything was 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 uh, different. The game itself was different. I mean, Red Grange, for anybody who knows the history, uh, is considered the guy who saved pro football in, in the in the twenties when uh, when he went on that great barnstorming tour. Where he played. You know, you talk about playing on third. These guys complain about playing one Thursday night a year. This guy played 19 games in th- in uh, uh, six weeks, I think it was, and, and then he he did it twice. They had to do two tours, uh, and and really sort of uh, saved a lot of teams. Saved the Detroit team, for example. And um, back then, if you suffered an injury, it was a career ender. Right. Yeah. The, those days, the old guys playing four, five, and six years suffered sure. an injury, you're done. No, you opened you up with a chainsaw in those days. Um, uh, now, one guy that uh, time in the hall forgot who intrigues me is Maxi Bond, the old Eagle and Ram. Uh, linebacker. He didn't make the 1960s All-Decade team, uh, yet he made nine Pro Bowls in those 10 years, which is more than any of the five linebackers who did make the All-Decade team. How the hell did he get overlooked, and how did that happen? Yeah, that one puzzles me. You know, Larry Morris didn't go to a single Pro Bowl in 1960 decade, and he was selected as an outside backer ahead of Bond on the 60s team. <laughs> Ray Nitsky went to one Pro Bowl. He's voted the team. Bond started as a rookie in 1960 and not only contributed to a championship season, he was voted the Pro Bowl. He played on both coasts and was a Pro Bowler in both conferences. I cannot explain how this man could burn his entire 25-year window of eligibility without ever once having his candidacy discussed as a finalist. There have been a lot of fumbles in this process over the years, and I think uh, whiffing on Maxi Bond was one of the worst fumbles. Well, that all-decade team really sticks out to me. Is you just like you say, you just scratch your head. Is uh, what were uh, they thinking? I know. I mean, a couple of my old uh, NFL friends from back who played back in the day. They all used to tell me that if Nishki had teeth, you never would have heard of him. But he had no teeth, so he looked like this fearsome guy, you know. Uh, but Maxie Bond, Ray Nishki, I mean, really? Um, yeah. Crazy. But um, Now I'll catch heat for this uh, from you, Goose Man. Uh, but tell the folks of the odd case of X-Raider tight end Todd Christensen, who has never gotten a sniff of all of fame, uh, and Kellen Winslow, who played in the same era and who many consider among the greatest tight ends of all time. I ask because it seems to me uh, to be just one of the odd situations where one guy goes forward and another guy doesn't, but there's no real explanation why. Well, you know the saying, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Well, in the case of Todd Christensen, don't buy it. Kellen Winslow arrived in the NFL as a first-round draft pick and had an immediate impact in the Eric Coriel offense in San Diego. Christensen arrived in the NFL as a second-round draft pick as a fullback and played sparingly with the Cowboys and Giants in his first two years before going to Oakland and moving to tight end. He didn't make an impact until his fourth season when he caught 42 passes. So even though he had seven terrific seasons, seasons equal or better than those of Winslow's, it's the first impression for both players that seems to have counted more. Winslow's in... Christensen is an afterthought. Now, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe if you look at their numbers, if you look at their uh, amount of seasons they led the league in receptions and the number of receptions, uh, they're almost identical, are they identical. not? Yeah, one uh, one went to like five Pro Bowls, the other went to five Pro Bowls, one won 3,000 yard seasons, the other had 3,000 yard seasons, one slow had two receiving championships, Christensen had two receiving championships, and his name has come or never come up. Never even a finalist. Sad. And as I recall, he won a championship, which uh, Kellen Winslow never managed to do despite. That would be correct. <laughs> That's incredible. And he was a key player on that championship team. He was, no question about it. I was out there at that time. Uh, Ghost, uh, with about a minute to go here, one other question. How many guys have been named all decade in two different decades, and how many of those guys are not in the Hall of Fame? Well, there have been 20, and all but two are in Shrine and Canton, and the two that aren't are kickers. 
Gary Anderson and Sean Landetta. And I say, uh, it's probably a long shot that either one ever gets in. <laughs> it's uh, it, it's funny how we come up to these uh, uh, with these sort of inequities, you know. We've argued about punters and kickers, you know. Some people don't think they're football players. But I know they're a football position. And Bill Parcells always just say, if you don't have them, then find out what kind of football team you have. <laughs> they should almost make you put in a kicker and a punter once every decade. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, we could do a whole show on this, Rick, but the clock's ticking on us, too, so we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll visit uh, one of those deserving senior candidates, former defensive player of the year, Nolan Cromwell. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. There are many ways to look at four-time Pro Bowl safety and NFC Defensive Player of the Year and 1980s All-Decade selection. Future Hall of Famer might be one. This week, Talk of Fame Network stated the case for Nolan Cromwell to have his credentials debated by the Hall's voters, something that hasn't happened in his 26 years of eligibility. He's moved into the senior pool now where Rick and I both have votes, so we're especially pleased to welcome Nolan Cromwell to Talk of Fame Network today. How are things in California, Nolan? <laughs> uh, they're, they're great. It's, uh, it's warm and, uh, you know, the sun's shining every day, so... Uh it's it's perfect. <laughs> well, before we get to your NFL career, uh, I'd like to ask you about a transition you made at Kansas when you went from starting safety to wishbone quarterback uh, three games into your junior year. As I recall, uh, head coach Bud Moore installed a wishbone and turned to you, and you ran for 294 yards against Oregon State, and the next week you ran for 184 against Wisconsin, and you finished the year with over 1,200 yards rushing in. You were the Big 8 Offensive Player of the Year. So did you see any of that coming, and did you have any doubts or anxieties about the idea? Well, you know, I probably had a little doubt, you know, as far as uh, uh, playing quarterback uh, at, at Kansas, you know, since I started as as the safety and, and I was – uh, had made, uh, you know, I think honorable mission all big eight my sophomore year and, and, uh, uh, and I thought, you know, who knows, but, uh, you know what, the team, the team's first, whatever they thought I could, uh, move into the position and play it. And, and the way he explained it to me was, was the fact that, hey, if, if you, if it doesn't work out at quarterback, we'll put you back at safety. You know what to do there, and we'll go. And uh, fortunately, you know, for for the team and and uh, and myself, uh, it did work out. Uh, I ended up starting uh, 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 my uh, third game into the season, and uh, and which was against Oregon State, and that's kind of the rest is history. Nolan, did you become the ransom rambler before or after you played quarterback? I uh, I think it was it was probably about that time. That was the nickname that I got, <laughs> and uh, and it was uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, unique just from the fact that I was come I was a small town in Kansas by the name of Ransom, and uh, and you know the town was uh, was less than four hundred, so it uh, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> I covered uh, I covered the big I live in Kansas City, covered the Big Eight back in the. In the seventies, eighties, and I remember that Oklahoma game. I bet you do too. It uh, it was 
you know, it, it was a great game for, for us as far as, uh, you know, they had a 29-game winning streak, and we ended up, uh, uh, you know, going down there in Oklahoma and, and beating them uh, pretty soundly. And and our defense played uh, exceptionally well that uh, that game. Uh, caught, I think they had eight turnovers, and, and uh, you know, we we were just uh, clicking at that time, and it really uh, really was an impressive win for us. I'm one of the nation. Yeah, let's let's get ahead of the Rams series. So so you're drafted by the Rams 1977. Come to L.A., a Kansas kid. You go to a team with Joe Namath, Jack Youngblood, Tom Mack. How intimidating was that transition? Well, you know what? Maybe I was too naive <laughs> to to really uh, think about the intimidation, but. Uh, you know, when I was drafted, you know, Chuck Knox told me exactly what was going to happen. He says, you will, you will come in your first year, play specialty teams. He says, your second year, you'll be the, uh, you'll be the, the nickel back that, that comes in. And the third year, you'll start. And he says, this will give you time to learn the system and understand, you know, the game. And, uh, at, at that point, you know, uh, I think you probably Probably mentally took a lot of stress off of myself and said, "Hey, this is what we're doing. This is the plan we have for you." And bang, and it went, and it went exactly how he told me he was going to do. I start ended up uh, special teams, Nickelback the second year, started the third year, and progressed on, but it gave me a great opportunity to learn the system, learn what my responsibilities are, and understand that you can't you can't cover, you know, everybody and do everything. You've got to do your part of the defense, and this is how you fit in the puzzle. Give me the, the skate shooting story from your rookie year. <laughs> um. I'm sorry, uh, I didn't hear you on that one. Give me your skeet shooting story. Oh, this, uh, I tell you what, my, after I made the team, uh, and, and it was actually our first game in the season, uh, Jack Youngblood come up to me, and I'd never talked to these guys at, at all, the veteran guys, and he says, hey, we go skeet shooting on Friday uh, after practice. He said, uh, uh, you're invited to come with us. And, you know, being a country guy, you know, heck, I, I was ready to go. So I went down and, and uh, we got, uh, shot skeet. And, and you know, that's that's one thing I thought, thought I could do pretty good. I, I'm used to hunting and, and shooting. And uh, I went down and, and I'm, I was pretty competitive with all the guys. So uh, I, I fit right in at that point. And it's really kind of the, the first time that I think I really felt I was part of the team, part of the group, was uh, that particular moment. Well, as you mentioned, uh, after two years, uh, you became a starting free safety in a system that it seems was perfectly built for your athleticism and style of play. Uh, did you know uh, pretty quickly that this was the right scheme for, for your skills? And uh, did you ever harbor any hidden quarterback fantasies of doing what you did at Kansas and do it for the Rams? <laughs> no, I, I didn't harbor any of those feelings as far as being a quarterback. I, I really knew I, I wasn't much of a thrower. I, uh, I didn't practice it, but, uh, uh, but when I <clears throat> was 
the scheme that that uh, we had graduated into with uh, Bud Carson as a defensive coordinator was a pressure defense, and it was hey, one on one, you got him, you got him, and the rest of us will rush, <laughs> rush the passer. And uh, we uh, we had great skill in our secondary at that point, and uh, uh, you know it, it was something for for me that you know. I felt that that if I could get my hands on on a receiver at the line of scrimmage, I could control really where he had to go and and where he wanted to go. So uh, I ended up uh, uh, it, it was the best thing for me because it was a challenge each and every down, and uh, and I uh, I thought I jumped up and and took uh, good control of that. No, we know about your defensive prowess, four Pro Bowls three-time first-team All-Pro, uh, led the league in interceptions in 1980. But you also were pretty good at holding. How, how did, on, on kicks, how did you become a holder, and how much fun was it? <laughs> That's interesting, because I, uh, my senior year in college, I had a, uh, a knee injury, went to the Rams. They had me out for the month of June when everybody else was gone. They had me out uh, to... Uh, to uh, make sure I rehad my knee, make sure it was solid and and ready to go for training camp, and uh, we were uh, we had hired a guy by the name of Ben Agaginian, longtime kicker and and um, he kind of a specialist on kicking and holding, and I was the only guy around. He was teaching, trying to teach a, a young man how to snap. What's the most important attribute of a holding? You know, people tend to not think about the holder unless he drops the ball or, 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 or screws up a fake. Uh, what's the most important attribute? Is it good hands, or, or what is it? I think, you, I think you've got to have great hands. I think you've got to have great hands and great confidence in, in what you're going to have to do to get the ball down, whether it's with a bad snap, a perfect snap. Uh, you've got to have those things in mind that, that if, hey, if I do drop the ball, what am I going to do? What, you know, don't panic and do it. But, uh, I ended up, uh, uh, having a lot of confidence in my hands. I thought I had good hands and, and was able to, uh, take any snap that anybody could give me. And, uh, heck, I even took a snap from Jack Youngblood, uh, one game. We had a, our center, our ex, our snapper went down, Rich Saul. He went down and, and, uh, Jack come in and he screwed around with it during, uh, during practice every now and then. But, uh, we'd never done it in a game. He jumped in there, boom, fired it back there. It bounced one time, but I got it and <laughs> put it down. <laughs> uh, well, you know, in 79, of course, the Rams faced the Steelers in the Super Bowl. Um, I wonder what you remember about that day and how difficult it was to come off the field on the wrong side of the score in the biggest game of the year. Exactly. The biggest game of the year and probably the biggest game of my career as far as pl- as a player. It uh, it was... It, um, to be in that game with the Steelers, be in control of the game, and then let it kind of drift uh, drift away, get away from us. Uh, that that was hard to take. And uh, but uh, there were, uh, you know, I look back and you know you you remember things about about the game. 
I remember one particular moment that uh, I had an opportunity for a interception that I didn't make, and I tell you what, that's that has haunted me uh, forever about uh, the Super Bowl. It uh, that you know, what if if I would have caught that, would I would we have changed the uh, uh, the complexion of the game, you know, but, uh, it was, it was quite a, uh, a game, a, a great, uh, uh, moment in my life and my career. Uh, you were defensive player of the year, I believe, playing with Bud Carson's defense, which was very aggressive and attacking, and they changed coordinators, went to Fritz Schumer. How, how did that impact your career, and what were you asked to do? Uh, you know, I, I missed uh, your question on that, uh, that little heart. Hard hearing on this land. Yeah, no, what was no. the question again? Uh, Bud Carson, you were defensive player of the year with Bud Carson as a coordinator, and he played in a very yes. attacking style. Then Fritz Schirmer came in. How did that? How did Fritz's defense impact your career and what you were asked to do? I went from a you know Bud Carson's defense where we were all man to man. Boom, you had your responsibility, take care of it. Boom, and, and uh, pressure type of defense. We a little more of attacking go after him type of defense. Uh, when uh, Fritz came in and uh, took uh, control, we went to a very simple and basic uh, three deep zone and we played it uh, we played it to perfection because that's the, that's what we were, that's who we were, that's what we did. But the chances uh, for uh, big plays, uh, different things, it, we were so disciplined on making sure you just stayed, you know, if I was in deep middle, you stayed in deep middle. If you're in the flat, you stayed in the flat, and you rallied to make, uh, make him throw the ball underneath and come up and make the play. So it really took away a lot of my aggressiveness uh, and I think our, our defensive aggressiveness. But, uh, again, uh, you know, there's, all, there's more than one defense, and, and uh, that defense uh, uh, worked very well for us. It just took away a lot of uh, uh, the things that I thought I – I did well. Well, Nolan, we'd love to uh, talk to you a little longer. In fact, uh, we'll probably come back to you another time because there's a lot more questions we have, but we've run out of time. We've got to go pay some bills. So uh, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Nolan. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, there's the whistle. The NFL may be running out of referees, but our producers are ready to blow the whistle at any time, and we know what that sound means. It's time for the two-minute drill. Fire away, Rick. The World Cup, Ryder Cup, Stanley Cup, or a steaming cup of coffee on a winter's morning? You cannot beat the Stanley Cup. Those guys are going end-to-end and all out all night long. But the Ryder Cup ain't bad when it comes down to Sunday, and the thing can go either way. What a Portugal still alive in a World Cup. Well, there you go. Well, now we're talking about a whole different set of encyclopedias there. <laughs> okay, who finds NFL employment first, Des Bryant or Colin Kaepernick? I say Des Bryant unless Kaepernick gets a field administrator's job with the United Farm Workers. <laughs> who finds NFL employment first, Johnny Menzel or Eric Reed? Uh, well, since neither one of them can get into a game these days, it's a toss-up. But I'll go with Manziel because the NFL loves quarterbacks even coming out of rehab, but they don't like activists coming out of court. 
Peyton Manning says Drew Brees deserves the NFL's all-time passing record. Which quarterback do you think deserves that passing record? Uh, Johnny Unitas, because he did it when pass defense was still legal. A.J. Green, Pumpsy Green, oh. or Draymond Green? Oh, so easy. Pumpsy was the Sox's first black player on the American League's last team to integrate. What's that tell you about Boston? I loved his name when I was a kid, and I respected all he went through when I got old enough to understand what that was. I had his baseball card. The NFL conducted supplemental draft on July 11. Who was the best player ever selected in a supplemental draft? Chris Carter. He's the only one in the Hall of Fame. Who opens the season as Arizona's starting quarterback? Sam Bradford or rookie Josh Rosen? Bradford opens it, but Rosen closes it. Do you believe Julian Edelman? Terrible knee injury, 32 years old, year of rehab, busted. Shocker. Ron, if you tested positive for an illegal substance in our Talk of Fame network testing, what would your excuse be? Clark Judge spiked my Arnold Palmer. That's the end of the next. <laughs> well, that's it for uh, the first hour of the Talk of Fame network. We'll be back after a few minutes and launch ourselves into our second hour, in which we're going to do a lot of talking, a little arguing, and some more interviewing. This is the Talk of Fame network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Ron Borges along with Rick Goslin. And if, if you think we're playing shorthanded, we are because our third Hall of Fame voter, Clark Judge, is off in the wilds of Canada. Considering the border situation, Goose, I hope we get him back without incident. As a fan of the Montreal Canadiens, he'll be one of the thousands in Canada wearing black armbands this summer. This marks the 25 consecutive summer the nation has not celebrated a Stanley Cup champion. Since the Canadiens won it all in 1994, we've seen cup celebrations in the sun-built cities of Anaheim, Dallas, Los Angeles, Raleigh, and Tampa, but nothing north of the border. Very sad. <laughs> Think about that. When we were growing up, Gooseman, that was not even Six. on anybody's radar screen. <laughs> Six teams. Exactly. That's when it was good. Uh, well, I know it's one of our favorites, speaking of Canada, Johnny uh, Football isn't playing much football up where Clark is headed. And that would be Johnny Menzel up with the Hamilton Tiger Cats in the Canadian Football League. Well, what particularly caught my eye was that his coach, June Jones, came out and said, quote, Johnny should be playing in the NFL, unquote. But then again, he's yet to play him in a regular season game in the CFL, which would seem to tell me that either June thinks Jeremiah Mazzoli should be playing in the NFL before Johnny football or something's going on. What's your take on what Jones is trying to do with Manziel up there? You know, I, I know June, and I think June is trying to teach Manziel a little humility so that mentally and emotionally he's ready for the NFL when his next chance comes. You know, I think June's saying Manziel has a physical tools to play in the NFL right now, but it's the rest of his makeup that needs work. Nothing will be given to him in Canada. He'll have to earn it. And I think Manziel will be both a better person and a better player because of it when he does come back down. Well, Gooseman, we only got about 30 seconds here, so I just want to say this. Mazzoli ain't making it easy. The guy's thrown for over 300 yards in the first two games, and he's thrown for over 3,700 yards since last September 1st under under June Jones. So he, uh, I would say, is not making it easy to get Johnny football off the Johnny bench. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be back uh, in a minute. 
Um, and we will visit with our resident Dr. Data to run some numbers. We'll talk to Hall of Fame voter Armando Salguro, uh, who learned by watching the pros practice that maybe you don't have to hit as much as he thought. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. Goose, the NFL just announced that the supplemental draft will be held July 11th, which got me thinking about what we're about, which is the history of this great game. Uh, so let's talk a little supplemental draft history. It all began in 1977, uh, and there have been 43 players taken since. Of those, only eight ever reached the Pro Bowl, and just one, Chris Carter, made it to the Hall of Fame. So is this much ado about nothing? Well, lately, yes, but once upon a time it wasn't. You know, the Browns landed Bernie Kosar, who would take them to two AFC title games. Seattle Seahawks landed Brian Bosworth, who would become a walk-in star for the Seahawks before injuries and Bo Jackson shortened his career. <laughs> uh, the Cowboys claimed quarterback Steve Walsh, whom Jimmy Johnson had coached at Miami. Cowboys surrendered a first-round draft pick for Walsh, as did the Browns for Kosar and the Seahawks for Bosworth, but Johnson took Walsh as a bargaining chip and would later trade him away for a first, a second, and a third. They called that the Lawrence Walk deal. A one, <laughs> two, and a three. Should have called that a robbery. That was obscene, <laughs> that thing. Uh, well, no one has even uh, made a supplemental pick since 2015 when the Rams took Isaiah Battle, and only three such players, Battle, Terrell Pryor, and Josh Gordon, uh, uh, are active in the league at the moment, uh, and who came in through that process. Um, any idea who might be a target this year, if any, Goose? Yeah, there are a couple cornerbacks that are worth a look. Brandon Bryant, Mississippi State, and Adonis Alexander, Virginia Tech. But I don't see teams surrendering high draft picks for the right to take either one of those guys. You just The premium picks are too valuable. Okay, uh, so let's take a look back through the history of the supplemental draft. Obviously, Chris Carter was the all-time best pick. He's, sick, he's the only Hall of Famer. Who's your next best choice? Well, let me point out that Carter did not become a Hall of Fame talent for the team that drafted him. You know, the Philadelphia Eagles spent a fourth-round pick on him and then cut him in his third season for his off-the-field issues. You know, he became a Hall of Famer, of course, later in life with the Vikings. But uh, the best pick in my mind was Kosar. You know, he orchestrated the move himself. He played at Miami but wanted to play professionally in his hometown of Cleveland. So he graduated early knowing that the Browns had the first pick in the supplemental draft and came out early. So he got what he wanted, and the Browns got what they wanted, franchise quarterback. Well, uh, unlike you, Mr. Offense, uh, I will opt for the old San Diego Charger defensive tackle, Jamal Williams. You're such a grunt guy. I am a grunt guy. I'm a little pudgy these days. Uh, so was Jamal. Uh, but he lasted 13 years. He went to the Pro Bowl three times. He was named All-Pro three times. And if you remember, when San Diego switched to a 3-4 front, he became one of the best nose tackles in the league for several seasons. Yep. You know, for a guy who came in through the back door in 1998 as a second-round supplemental selection, I'd argue that that was a value pick. Uh, you got another all-supplemental, not all-supplements, by the way, that would be Julian Edelman, the uh, all-supplemental selection? Yes, Mr. Asian Football, I do. I'll go with Syracuse wide receiver Rob Moore. Who Ooh, came good one. In 1990, was claimed by the New York Jets with a first-round pick. He played 11 seasons, caught 628 career passes, went to two Pro Bowls, and led the NFL in receiving yards in 1997. Pretty good supplemental pick, and right now he's coaching uh, in the NFL, uh, wide receivers, Tennessee Titans. 
You know, one guy who was, I, I forgot it was a supplemental pick, and that was Bobby Humphrey, who had, you know, 2,000-yard rushing seasons, uh, you know, with the Denver Broncos. You know, you'd see, you tend to see that, and you just sort of assume he was, well, whatever, you know, fourth-round pick or something. But he was another guy who climbed in, you know, through the back window, as they say. Um, but of the 43 picks, only eight have been taken on the first round, Goose. No surprise, five were quarterbacks. You being Mr. Offense, you would understand that. And <laughs> that includes one by your old pal Jimmy Johnson that you mentioned when he took Steve Walsh, which was a bad pick that he turned into a good pick because he robbed somebody else. But uh, um, Dave Wilson in 1981 wasn't much better. Uh, he was the first first round supplemental pick uh he lasted nine years in the league but he's 12 and 19 as a starter and he had 55 picks to 36 touchdown passes as coach belichick might say not what we're looking for so other than bernie kozar were any of the other supplemental number ones really worth the investment i can't believe you went through the whole thing <laughs> and didn't talk about dave brown yeah dave brown you're right i, I wanted to open up for you got to replace phil sims no, I think uh, as far no, as he played a position after Phil Sims, not quite the same as replacing him. <laughs> <laughs> That's the intent to replace him. No, as far as the first round, I think Rob Moore certainly was a first round talent. I think had Brian Bosworth stayed healthy, he would have been worthy of a first round pick. And I think if Jamal Williams, as you mentioned, had arrived in the NFL uh, now, I think at that position he'd have first round value. He was a second round pick then, but uh, in today's game he'd, he'd have first round value. No, you're right about that. And, uh, and I'll tell you a guy who maybe could have been the best supplemental pick, and maybe he still might become that guy, and that's Josh Gordon. Uh, and the Browns took him in 2012. A year later, he led the league in receptions. Everybody remembers that. He had 1,646 yards. He averaged 18.9 a catch and 117.6 yards a game. Uh, and then his career uh, went up in smoke, literally. Weed has gotten Gordon repeatedly suspended and cost him nearly three of his prime years, but now he's back. Do you give him uh, much of a chance to turn back the clock to that 2013 season uh, when he terrorized the NFL? Well, keep in mind, he's only 27. And I know. Speed hasn't left him. You know, if the Browns can sort out their quarterbacking situation, I can see Gordon going back to Pro Bowl again before he's 30. Well, the, the speed has – hopefully the weed has left them because <laughs> it's, just, it's unbelievable. If, if they're right on the quarterback, uh, I, frankly, I like Cleveland's future. they got pass rushers. It's that safety is a pretty good player they've got. they got a running back, uh, except for the losing Joe Thomas. I think the Browns, things are looking up in Cleveland. That's a scary thing to say. I, I mean, you're right, but it just uh, when, you, when you hear it, you just kind of go, really? I don't know. Um well, it's time for one of my favorite segments, and we're going to uh, go off into our Dr. Data segment. Um, Dr. Dr. Data always brings the knowledge. So what information do you have for us this week, Rick? Ron, the NFL has lost 23% of its referee pool this offseason with the departures of Ed Hockley, Terry McCauley, Gene Steratore, and Jeff Triplett. So the NFL is certainly losing some quality. But the NFL passes out its playoff assignments based on merit, and there are 17 officiating crews. Hockley, Sterator, and Triplett were among the nine referees assigned to work playoff games last season. They had good years. In addition, McCauley, Sterator, and Triplett have all refed recent Super Bowls. Triplett in 2011, McCauley in 2013, and Sterator last February. That tells you that each graded out as the NFL's best referee in those three respective seasons. But the NFL is also losing quantity. Those four referees uh, headed crews that all ranked among the top nine penalty crews last season. 
all assessed 200 or more penalties in the 15 games they were assigned to work last season. And that's the best part of their departures. That removes 826 flags and 7,100 yards from the NFL's penalty till. Ouch. Triplett himself led the NFL's 17 officiating crews with four games of 20-plus penalties. Long afternoon. In eight of his 15 games, he assessed at least 10 penalties against one team. Ugh. So I doubt there are many NFL head coaches unhappy to see him go. You know, I've long felt NFL officials should be part of the show, uh, less a part of a show than they actually are. That card stunt by Stereotor last <laughs> December in the Dallas-Oakland Monday night game took the cake. The less I see of the officials, the more I seem to enjoy the games. The less I see of penalty flags, the better the games. If the NFL hires four new replacement refs who are less anxious to throw flags than the four that are departing, football and its fans will benefit. You got that right. I suffered through several triplet games this year. It's unbelievable. They were quadruple games by the, when he was refereeing. It was ridiculous. Yes, um, so, uh, do you believe that there's a shelf life for referees as to which they begin to stink, like some protos? And is experience overrated at some point? I don't think experience is, is ever overrated. It prevents you from making mistakes. But I think what needs to happen is an overhaul of the NFL officiating system. They get graded on calls they make and the calls they don't make. So rather than miss a call, they'll throw a flag. The penalty may not even impact the outcome of the play, but you throw it anyway because you don't want to get graded down. You know, by a rule, you shouldn't throw a flag unless it's flagrant. Let the players decide the game, not the officials. And if these young guys come in and don't throw flags, I'm a big fan of the officials. Well, I agree with you there, uh, Dr. Data. Bringing the real news, not the fake news. Now we've got to take a break, but when we come back, we'll visit with Hall of Fame voter Armando Salguero to see if the Dolphins have someone too long ignored by the Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Nobody understands the Miami Dolphins better than our next guest. Armando Salguero has covered the Dolphins as a beat writer and columnist since 1990. That's nearly 30 years spent swimming around NFL sea life. He's an old friend of ours, a Hall of Fame voter. And he's back today to fill us all in on who among the Dolphins, many stars of the past, might be the most deserving of Hall of Fame inclusion. Armando, welcome back from Bermuda. Thank you very much, man. I'm well tanned, and I must announce that um, I was 12 years old in 1990. So I must have got the math wrong. What is it? When did you start? <laughs> fill me in. Uh, no, no, no. Seriously, uh, that's the, my point. I started when I was 12 years old. <laughs> Are you buying that? Are you believing me? <laughs> I think not. I think not. You're I pulling, think not either. Yeah. You're, you're, you're pulling my leg, which you probably don't want to do. But <laughs> yeah. uh, So who uh, the Dolphin fans and their organization feel is the most overlooked and deserving player uh, You know, when it comes to Hall of Fame debate? Well, okay, so if you're asking me who the fans believe is the most deserving, I think that the movement afoot down here in South Florida would be for Zach Thomas. And the reason for that is that Brian Urlacher 
uh, is, you know, voted into the Hall of Fame. And the fans are looking at Brian Urlacher, and they're looking at Zach Thomas, and they see, this is the fans now, they see pretty much the same guy. They see a guy that didn't win a championship. They see a guy who made a ton of uh, pro bowls. They see a guy who made a ton of tackles. They see a guy that made a ton of game-changing plays and was the leader of his defense. And so if you look at the statistics, the tackle numbers, all those things, that's the reason that South Florida Miami Dolphin fans are saying, why not Zach? Uh, you know, why not him? Because basically Brian Erlacher is in. And so now they think that Zach deserves to be in. Well, they got a legit point because uh, there were three middle linebackers picked in the all-decade team. Two of them went in first ballot. <laughs> so I would assume that uh, Zach would be somewhere in the queue coming up. Well, he's been in the queue. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll be very frank with you, okay? Notice I couched my, my commentary by saying that's who the South Florida fans yes. think should be. Right. Um, I'm not sure that Zach is a Hall of Fame player, okay? Uh, but I am certainly left with zero doubt that he deserves the conversation, that he deserves the debate. And unfortunately for him, it's never, he's never been in, in the room, so to speak. Uh, he never makes it uh, into, you know, the the realm of the wonderful round table of 48 or 46 or however number we are these days. And I really think that at the very least, a conversation, a debate about him would be the fair thing to do. Uh, I'm not saying that he absolutely positively is a Hall of Famer and deserves to be in. And oh, by the way, I've talked to Zach Thomas. He's not saying that he is absolutely positively a Hall of Famer. But uh, a guy that deserves consideration and significant consideration amongst the voters, yeah, absolutely. Well, one, one of the names that we always think about when it comes to the Dolphins is Bob Kuchenberg, uh, who seemed to get left in the in the dust when they put all the other linemen in ahead of him. And then uh, then Eddie Pope came and said he was the best. So um, ooh, how do you see Kuchenberg's uh, candidacy? He's in the senior pool now. And uh, what do the people in the, in the organization say about him? Well, Obviously, the, the folks in the organization have a very high regard for Bob Kuchenberg, starting with Don Shula, who knows a thing or two about, you know, football players having won more games than anybody on the planet. The problem for Kuchenberg was, as far as I can see, is that a lot of people, and we're getting down the, the line now, a lot of people that are going to be discussing him and voting for him or not, they didn't ever see him play. I mean, we just started this segment joking about my age. And, you know, I'm 55 years old now. 55? 50? Yeah, 55. And I, I got to tell you, <laughs> you know, in 1982 or whatever it was, or 19-whatever, 
I was kind of busy. <laughs> I wasn't covering the Miami Dolphins. I was trying to, like, get out of college. I was trying to graduate high school. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't <laughs> taking that on Dolphin games. And I certainly wasn't watching the guard play. <laughs> and unfortunately for Cooch, uh, that's the problem now because uh, the ball watchers, they didn't see him. The new, the you know there is a now a new generation of of not only voters but fans. They didn't see him. Uh, you know, history is not is not uh, helping him because. History is way back there, and we're way up here, and that's that's not good for Bob Kuchenberg. Okay, let me throw a name at you that you have seen play that you do know. He's a friend of the show, Richmond Webb. All-decade tackle, never discussed. What's going on with that? Ding, 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 ding. That's my guy. That guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. All right? So... Notice I said earlier that, you know, I think Zach deserves a conversation right. and, and, and all that, and good for Zach. But <laughs> Richmond Webb deserves to be in the hall. You've got to understand, he played 11 seasons, okay? He played 118 consecutive games. He had seven consecutive Pro Bowls. He played, the reason that he was drafted was... The Dolphins obviously had Dan Marino, and the Buffalo Bills had a guy named Bruce Smith. And the Dolphins didn't want Bruce Smith to decapitate Dan Marino. <laughs> and so Richmond Webb was the guy that two times a year at least, and oftentimes more, because in the early 90s, you know, the Dolphins and the Bills would meet in the playoffs aside from their two regular season meetings. It was Richmond Webb against Bruce Smith. And I know this. Um, I've talked to Vic Carucci, and who is the outstanding columnist and beat writer at the Buffalo News, who covered those Super Bowl Bills teams. And he's talked to, you know, obviously Bruce Smith. And the story goes, according to Vic, that when he raised the idea of Richmond Webb with Bruce Smith, Bruce Smith wasn't too eager to talk about Richmond Webb. And his takeaway was Bruce Smith doesn't like to talk about failure. So <laughs> when you can, I'm not going to say he dominated Bruce Smith because Bruce Smith was an amazing player, but he more than often got the better of Bruce Smith. And when that happens and you're one-on-one -on -one and the Dolphins are throwing the ball, you know, 35, 40 times a game way back then, uh, I think that that is a thing that I respect uh, to the utmost. Now, those great Dolphin teams of the uh, of the 70s when, when you were in kindergarten, uh, the boys <laughs> kept going to the Super Bowls, went undefeated. They had... <laughs> Two great safeties, Jake Scott and Dick Anderson, who also don't seem to be uh, able to get much play. What do you think of either of them as Hall of Fame candidates, and are they in that category of certainly deserving a debate? That, you know, I, I, I like those two players. I think both of them were outstanding NFL players. But honestly, um, look, if... 
Dick Anderson, a lot of people down here like to say that he was Ed Reed before Ed Reed was Ed Reed, okay? Mm-hmm. And sure enough, Dick Anderson was amazing, and he made a lot of big plays for the Miami Dolphins, and he did it in the biggest moments. Ask the Pittsburgh Steelers about that one. Having said that, I think both of those men are, and especially Jake Scott, Dick Anderson is, I thought, better and had a better career. But both of those guys, to me, are the hall of very good, the hall of the outstanding. But the hall of fame, that's, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, don't get me wrong. If they were ever to come up for a vote from the committee, uh, I would be in their corner, and I would absolutely... Uh, champion their cause, but I recognize that, you know, with Jake Scott, you know, he had a a tough time here at the end with, with Don Shula. I think he only played here four years, five years, then he was traded to the Redskins. Um, it, it just, the, the longevity, the excellence over a long time, and being the best at your position uh, during your time, they were up there, but they weren't the guys. Fair enough. We appreciate that honesty, to tell you the truth. You know, the Dolphins certainly aren't out of Hall of Fame candidates. We never even got to the, to the marks. Uh, but we're out of time, uh, Armando. So uh, thanks for visiting with us again here at Talk of Fame Network. And don't be a stranger. We like having you around. I'll call you tomorrow. We can do it again. There we go. <laughs> thanks, Armando. <laughs> All right, man. Take it easy. We'll be back in a minute to visit with another Hall of Fame voter, Mark Craig of the Minneapolis Star Tribune, talking about missing Vikings in the Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Mark Craig is a longtime chronicler of the Minnesota Vikings comings and goings for the Minneapolis Star Tribune and one of our fellow Hall of Fame voters. Mark's joining us today as part of our ongoing series to find the most deserving candidates from each NFL franchise not yet in the Hall of Fame. Who'd have a better handle on that than Mark? No one, which is why we're glad to welcome him back. Yeah, no problem, guys. I, I know who, uh, Bud Grant. And uh, Bud, <laughs> Bud has a guy that he's in mind uh, that he's been barking about for, oh, geez, uh, 40 years. I don't know. <laughs> a long time. But Jim Marshall uh, would be the guy that uh, I think the franchise is, uh, the consensus would be that they believe uh, is deserving of the Hall of Fame. Would he be your choice? You know, I... I I think so. Yes, I mean that's definitely the, uh, and it's. I think it goes deeper than I, mean, I know the people when they bring up the there's. I believe there's no all pros or two Pro Bowls. Um, I know that uh, it, the longevity, the fact that he was the such a uh, the, the fabric of the, the those Vikings teams that went to four Super Bowls, the four of the first of eleven Super Bowls. I know that they were obviously hurt by not playing very well in those Super Bowls, but. Uh, you know, when you when you say Mr. Viking, it, it's Jim Marshall, and then uh, sort of a, uh, the epitome of that of that of everything about that team at that time. Uh, he and Mick Tinglehoff, and I know Bud Grant uh, has reached out. I'm sure to you guys or the senior committee, and has made his pitch uh, about um, one of the things he always harps about is just how much when he came in, 
uh, he needed leaders, uh, people that would, uh, you know, take his word and take it to the team. And the two people, you know, that uh, that did that for him were, you know, Mick Tinglehoff and Jim Marshall. And uh, I believe, you know, I, I would say Marshall would be my number one uh, choice uh, as a Hall of Famer. Mark, what hurts his candidacy more, the four Super Bowl losses or just the two Pro Bowl bursts in his 20-year career? You know, I, I would think it's, um, I mean, there's been uh, you know ample guys that have gone in from those Super Bowls now. I, I think it would probably be those uh, those individual accomplishments that he didn't get, and I, you know, I'm not really sure why. Um, you know, he's a heck of a player. His sacks are right there with... Uh, uh, with with Carl Ellers, and I know that uh, you know that defensive line played. It wasn't just one or two guys; it was you know across the board, and they you know, they never came out. So, um, but I would say an answer to that question would be those. Uh, I would think it would be the uh, the individual uh, honors. Mark, another guy. Uh who's a favorite of ours, uh, quite frankly, here at Talk of Fame, uh, is Chuck Foreman. You know, the, the guy only played eight seasons, but half of them he was named All-Pro. Uh, he had three straight 1,000-yard rushing seasons back when they were playing 14 games, and that actually meant something uh, in 1975. As you know, he led the NFL in receptions. He was the top six in rushing three times, the top ten in receiving four times. So why isn't he in the Hall of Fame? Yeah, you get Jerry Burns talking about the uh, uh, the West Coast offense, quote unquote, a West Coast offense, and uh, uh, you know the Vikings believe that they had that before the uh, the Forty Niners won their Super Bowls with it, and Chuck Foreman was that guy, uh, you know, that could re- re- receiver and runner, uh, and I know that the shorter career hurt hurt him, but. Uh, his candidacy has been renewed around here. You know, the push for him when uh, when Terrell Davis went in, and you know, so see, certainly another guy. I mean, he he uh, I think he had five Pro Bowls and uh, I believe one All Pro in 1975, uh, and he did in those thousand yard rushing seasons back when it it meant more. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's up there too. Uh, you know, and I think his his case gets stronger as we start to see. You know who's who goes into the Hall of Fame, and then you look well. Who should go going in? So he he would be up there as well. Well, I, I agree with you. I think the Terrell Davis situation makes his case stronger, but in all honesty, it makes a lot of cases stronger too. He's not just the only one. But something struck me earlier that you said is, is that the uh, Vikings believe they had the West Coast offense before the Forty ers won the Super Bowls. But that's the difference: the Forty ers won the Super Bowls and the Vikings didn't. And yeah, I'm wondering, yeah. Yeah. do you think you think Chuck Foreman is another guy who's penalized because of that? In other words, had they won Super Bowls, that we'd be talking about him as a guy who's in Canton. Yeah, so uh, uh, Dave in that room. One of the things that swayed, or you know, that stood out to me was his postseason, uh, just what he did in the postseason, and uh, you know, Chuck, um, and as well as the entire Vikings team, uh, did not in those four Super Bowls. Uh, the rushing, uh, there was such a lopsided. Of, you know, the Vikings couldn't run the ball, and the other teams ran the ball all over them. So, yeah, that, I mean, there's there's guys that are definitely hurt by that. There's no no question. Mark Jerry Kramer was picked or voted the best guard in the first 50 years. He waited 45 years to get in. How long is Steve Hutchinson going to have to wait? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's interesting because uh, I think when we, you know, came out of that room, I think everyone thought it was a it was a good class. But we, I think, um, yeah, I won't speak for you guys certainly, but it was like, oh, you know, boy, we're getting a, these uh, of these offensive linemen now. Uh, when are they going to go in? So, 
uh, I guess if there's a pecking order, he might he might be behind a couple guys. So, I, you know, 45 years, I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't see that. But uh, <laughs> it, it may take a while. To, it may take a while to get all those guys in. Ron, I think he just did speak for us, right? We came to that room going, what are these offensive linemen going to get in? Yeah. What are you waiting for? Exactly. Let me tell you, yeah. four years becomes 45 years pretty fast, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that, that's right. Hey, that's hey right. We, got, we got guys that don't get in in, t- in two years. They, they can't wait three years, and they, they, they don't show up at the Hall of Fame. So it's a... Uh, you know, maybe, Hutch, if he has to wait 45 years, Hutch may not show up, I think. <laughs> I, I have no idea who you're talking about who won't show up at the Hall of Fame. I have no idea who you're talking about. Uh, well, it takes 45 years. I know I'm not going to be presenting him. So, uh, we'll, 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 let, we'll, we'll, we'll let Sid uh, do that in 45 years. 45 years, I won't even be in the Hall, let alone the Hall of Fame. I'll be under the ground. But, uh, uh, so let's get into the Wayback Machine uh, for a little minute, if you don't mind, because that's uh, where I like to... I'll spend a lot of my time. Uh, and when I get back there, I see a guy named Grady Alderman who, when I was a kid, I got more Grady Alderman, same card every year. They must have printed like five times as many of him as anybody else. Cause I wanted Johnny Unitas, I got Grady Alderman. But, but he was a great tackle on three of those Super Bowl teams. He played 16 years. He went to six Pro Bowls. Uh, I think he was named one of the 50th greatest Vikings of all time. And I just saw yeah. uh, his name just popped up this year on a preliminary senior ballot, which I hadn't seen in a while. Um, what do you think? Do you think he deserves a place in Ken, and do you think uh, uh, there's any way he can emerge from the great abyss that is the uh, senior pool? Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of guys on that list that will be ahead of him, but you know, you look at it, he was all pro in, in 69, and he went to six Pro Bowls. Um, you know, I can't say that I remember watching Grady Alderman uh, play when I was a kid, uh, you know, uh, not studying the game. I do remember the, the, that defensive line and the you know, just why you know that the, the toughness of that defensive line, but uh, you know he certainly has uh, some some credentials there. Uh, it, it's tough when you start thinking. You know, I, I don't envy you guys on the senior committee when you say, you know, wh- where do you draw the line? And and when it comes to all pros and Pro Bowls and and just uh, being able to go back and talk to these guys that uh, that have seen them play and uh, the ones that you haven't seen play, it's it's not easy. Well, let me ask you about uh, one of the Browners, because it seemed like when I was covering the Chargers in the 90s, uh, 80s and 90s, there was a Browner in every team, and they were all really good players. Yeah. But Joey Brown, Joey Brown is the guy I'm talking about. Um, strong safety yeah. was on the 1980s all-decade team, six-time Pro Bowler, and he's a potential Hall of Fame nominee. W- what's keeping him out, and how do either the Vikings organization or do you feel ab- about him and whether he should be in Canton or not? Well, he's one of the ones that, I, and I don't know if other people were doing this as well, but when it came time to put guys on the preliminary ballot or put them back on the ballot, I was always like, you know, here's three three all pros and six of Pro Bowls, and I and I do remember watching him play, and you know, was that uh, was a heck of a player, and I, you know, I guess if I had to. If I wasn't in in the Marshall camp so strong, thinking he belongs, uh, Joey Browner is would be would be my one uh, B. I guess I I see him as uh, you know, when you start getting to, to three uh, All Pro and uh, the kind of player he was, uh, I, I'm surprised. He, is he uh, when does he go up to the senior committee, or is he already there trying to? No, I think he's got a while. It'll be a while. Yeah. A while okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know if, they, if that's one that gets taken care of there, but uh, yeah, he's he's a guy I know that I've kept putting, uh, or at least one of the people that can put putting him back in the pool to to, to consider. 
Mark, is there no love for Gary Larson? Gary Larson, yeah, hey. If you put Jim Marshall in, then, then Gary needs to go in. But, yeah, I mean, Gary's a heck of a player, too. That was, that was one heck of a defensive line, and they never came off the field. Do you think people just said, look, we got two of them in. We don't need to put any more in. you think that's what the case was? Yeah. What do you, you, know, uh, what do you think the, the future holds for uh, Adrian Peterson? You know, I mean, they obviously he's got tremendous numbers. Um, but one begins to wonder about some of these numbers when, you know, if you average 65 yards a game you get, you, in 16 games, you've got 1,000 yards. So what are you really, you know? And, and obviously he piled up more than that at various times. But in the end, he's going to have a problem a lot of guys have. What did he win? Okay, he did this, he did that, but what did he win? And, and that seems to be hurting uh, a lot of guys and, and a lot of Vikings, frankly. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we're talking about this on uh, – on the, the Star Tribune blog or our, our uh, podcast, and um, I think I think he's 16th or 15th in rushing, and I think all but one ahead of him is is in the Hall of Fame. And one, it's just one that's not eligible. It's uh, or Gore, and then there's four behind him. So it seems like everybody in front of him, everybody in the four or five behind him, are in the Hall of Fame. Um, he does have, I, I want to say. Three or four All Pro. Um, he's got the two thousand yards. He, he led the league in rushing three times. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I think he's a Hall of Famer. I don't think it's uh, he's a, has to wait. Certainly not uh, too long. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, uh, when it's a postseason, you're talking. You know, unfortunately, the guy's only has has one. Uh, he's only been a part of one win in the postseason. Thanks, Mark. That was interesting. Talk about the Vikings. And Goose, you know, when you think of the Vikings, uh, they're one of the teams you think of for what? Losing Super Bowls. Same with the Buffalo Bills. What do you think the effect of that is on these kinds of great players who, who maybe get ignored? Yeah, I think there's a stigma when you lose you know, multiple Super Bowls. And I'll give you another team, Denver. Denver's lost five Super Bowls. And what do these three teams have in common? They all feel they've been shorted uh, in the Hall of Fame. You know, had, had Minnesota won... One of those Super Bowls, I think Jim Marshall's in the Hall of Fame. As it stands, Jim Marshall can't in the door. You look at uh, at Denver. You know that if if they had won that uh, Super Bowl in the '70s or one of those, you know, I think Randy Gratishar is probably, and I think Louis Wright's been in the discussion. And again, Carl Mecklenburg, these are good players, Hall of Fame worthy players that never get discussed. You know, Buffalo, Ken Hall. If the Bills had won one or two of those Super Bowls. I think Ken Hall is in. So, yeah, I think there's a stigma with losing, and I think it impacts the candidacy of the players. Well, you know, it, we've kicked around the idea of maybe there's too much emphasis on on did your team win the Super Bowl. I mean, this is an individual uh, award, not a team award, but nearly 70% of the guys in the hall played on championship teams. Do we overemphasize that a bit too much? Yeah, especially when you look at teams like, you know, the Steelers had a great team in the 70s. They got nine guys in. The Packers, you know, team of the 60s, they've got 11 players in. Yeah, I think teams get uh, they get the benefit of the doubt. If if you if you won many championships, you got to figure there's a lot of great players. Um, the Cowboys, you know, won more games than any team in the in 1970s. You know, they've got a bunch in now. Yeah, I think that's just human nature. You want to reward guys that have success, and some franchises have it, and some franchises that don't get punished for it. Well, you know, Goose, I always used to say they put in one more steal, they got to show Ch- Chuck Knoll's ass out of the Hall of Fame because why didn't he win every year if, he got that, <laughs> if he's got that many Hall of Fame voters? Uh, and with that, we're going to uh, run off and take a break. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Bill Chadwick may have been hockey's big whistle, but we have one too. That's the two-minute And that's the signal. It's time for our final two-minute drill of this season. Let her rip, Rick. If you're Bucks GM Jason Licht, do you pick up soon-to-be-suspended Jameis Winston's fifth-year option? You do not. You let the Amish rifle draw a bead on him. <laughs> Who will have the better career, Jared Goff or Marcus Mariota? Well, it looks like Goff to me right now. I don't know. I've just always felt that Mariota isn't quite what people hope he is. The Cleveland Browns have the NFL most $66 million in available salary cap space. How would you suggest they spend it? I suggest they spend it on a bunch of fatties who can protect their quarterback, whoever he may be, and more defensive help in case they can't do that. Which NFL team has the best future? LA Rams. They got a young offense, a, a studly defense, and a coach who can coach. What was the worst contract signing this offseason? You won't like it, Gooseman, but I think it's Minnesota fully guaranteeing Kirk Cousins' $84 million deal when he's 26 30 and 1 as a starter and hasn't won a playoff game. That looks like potential disaster to me. You, the champion of guaranteed contracts? <laughs> I love guaranteed contracts. A.J. Green says he's not looking for a new contract. Translation, please. He knows he isn't going to get one out of Mike Brown, so why bother aggravating yourself? Champ Bailey or Ty Law? <laughs> Depends on what you like. If you like Pro Bowl trips to Hawaii, Champ Bailey. If you like more regular season interceptions, more playoff interceptions, more Super Bowl rings, take Ty, because he laid down the law. Four of the NFL's most senior referees have retired this offseason. Ed Hockley, Terry McCauley, Gene Serator, and Jeff Triplett. What's triggering the exodus? Like everything else in the NFL, TV money. Which Gruden would you want coaching your NFL team, Jay or John? I'll take John. I don't know if he's the better coach, but I know he's better at a party. <laughs> Which class of 2018 is Shriney will have the best party this August on induction weekend? Got to be Jerry Kramer. He's been waiting 45 years for this shindig, so bring on the brats and the beer and put on your cheese head. That's the end of the game. <laughs> well, that wraps up our second two-minute drill and our show. It's a, we'll be back in four weeks after taking our summer hiatus, but you can hear a collection of the best of our shows for the next month. We'll see you when training camp opens. This is the Talk of Fame Network.